Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the letter to the Colossians, chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him, who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him also you were circumcised with spiritual circumcision, by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him. When he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or of observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Do not let anyone disqualify you insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, dwelling on visions puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? The word of God for the people of God. Author of life, we thank you for your word, and we ask that your spirit would dwell within us to transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. Last week, we heard from Paul about the nature of Christ as the ruler of rulers and authority over the authorities. This week, Paul continues his argument to explain how Christ, being in a place of final judgment, creates an ethical imperative for us as followers of Christ. And quite simply, all of today's reading is summed up in that one question, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world. For the Colossians in particular, they live as if they belonged to the world by submitting to religious rituals demanded by false teachers. And in denouncing these rituals, Paul echoes the prophets. Paul says, therefore do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or of observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come, 
but the substance belongs to Christ. And compare these to the words of Amos, whom we've heard from for the last couple of weeks. Amos says, I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This recurring theme of scripture that Paul is tapping into is that piety is empty if it's not accompanied by a transformed life. If we truly belong to Christ, why would we act in any other way? If we're devoted to Christ in the sanctuary, then we have to be devoted to Christ in our vocations, and we have to be devoted to Christ in our political lives. There can be no obedience to lesser authorities because we serve the authority most high. And today's reading from Hosea warns us of the consequences of living as though we still belong to the world. The Lord proclaims to Hosea, Go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits whoredom by forsaking the Lord. You see, the people of ancient Israel make a mistake that runs through the history of God's people. They confuse their kingdom for God's kingdom. And this failure of loyalty is not one that God takes lightly. The Lord proclaims to Hosea, I will no longer have pity on the house of Israel or forgive them. And you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is the catch of answering to one who pronounces final judgment. There is still a judgment on those who turn away. The rulers of ancient Israel and Judah turned away from the God who commanded them to care for the widows and orphans. They abused the foreigners in their lands whom the Lord God had placed into their care. They cheated the working people of the land, seeking first their own enrichment. And for their sins, Israel and Judah were destroyed. But the Lord also promised through Hosea, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Because we serve a God of resurrection, hope is never entirely removed. Judgment and destruction were visited upon the people of Israel and Judah, and the prophets who had called the people to resist the lesser powers of the world now called the people to repentance in the wake of destruction. And in repentance, the people experienced reformation. They experienced new ways of life together. They experienced recommitment to the ways of the Lord. And this cycle repeats itself in scripture. The author of Daniel lives through another time of resistance and reformation. John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ resist the lesser authorities of their day. They pay for it with their lives. But the reformation that they, begin, that they began continues to this day in the people called Christians. So let us consider the example of two more recent Christian figures 
who show us what it means to respond to Paul's question, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian and pastor in Weimar, Germany, and he was one of the early resistors of fascism in his home country. In 1933, when Adolf Hitler gained power, Bonhoeffer abandoned a promising career in academia as he watched both the academy and the church enable the rise of the Nazi party. Over the next several years, he split his time between England, where he pastored two churches, and Germany, where he helped to lead the confessing church in opposition to the Nazis. In 1937, Bonhoeffer wrote a book that in English has been given the title, The Cost of Discipleship. In this book, Bonhoeffer mourns the fact that the church dispensed such cheap grace that it had sold out the gospel. Cheap grace is the kind of grace that tells people that their sins are forgiven, but that has no expectation that they actually change their lives. It's the kind of grace that led the rulers of Israel and Judah to mistake their corrupt kingdoms for the kingdom of God. In contrast, Bonhoeffer explains that the costly grace of the gospel means that, quote, the Christian's worldly calling is sanctified only insofar as that calling registers the final radical protest against the world. Only insofar as the Christian's secular calling is exercised in the following of Jesus, does it receive from the gospel new sanction and justification. In other words, costly grace is a grace that places demands on on us to change how we are living. Cheap grace certainly has its temptations. Cheap grace might bring people in the door. Cheap grace might win over easy converts. But what does it do for their souls or for their lives? Of this cheap grace, Bonhoeffer writes, it means that I set out to live the Christian life in the world with all my sins justified beforehand. I can go and sin as much as I like and rely on this grace to forgive me. For after all, the world is justified in principle by grace. I can therefore cling to my bourgeois secular existence and remain as I was before, but with the added assurance that the grace of God will cover me. In other words, cheap grace is the kind of grace that convinces us we're saved from the consequences of our actions without working any change in our hearts or our souls. It's the kind of grace that makes us feel good about ourselves without requiring us to do any soul searching. It's an illusion that fools us into believing that repentance can occur without first experiencing conviction for our wrongdoings. Cheap grace produces cheap discipleship that does not withstand testing or correction. Bonhoeffer continues, it's under the influence of this kind of grace that the world has been made Christian, but at the cost of secularizing the Christian religion as never before. The Christian life comes to me nothing more than living in the world and as the world, in being no different from the world in fact, of being prohibited from being different from the world for the sake of grace. The upshot of it all is that my only duty as a Christian is to leave the world for an hour or so on a Sunday morning and go to church to be assured that my sins are all forgiven. 
I need no longer try to follow Christ for cheap grace, the bitterest foe of discipleship, which true discipleship must loathe and detest, has freed me from that. As Bonhoeffer makes clear, cheap grace is a threat to our loyalty as followers of Christ. It's a kind of grace that dismisses our own sins with sweet whispers that assure us that we shouldn't feel any guilt over our misdeeds because everyone else is a sinner too. It dulls our senses to the need to truly follow Christ. After all, if God is loving and God is graceful, then surely my sins must already be forgiven. But in falling for these lies, we abandon the message that Paul offers to the Colossians. We neglect our loyalty to Christ, the very loyalty that Christ asks of us in return for our judgment of salvation. All that Christ asks for is our loyalty. And when we let ourselves be persuaded by cheap grace, we fail to give even that. And Bonhoeffer knew that this cheap grace imperils not only us as individuals, it imperils the life of the entire body, the church. Again, Bonhoeffer writes, but do we also realize that this cheap grace has turned back upon us like a boomerang? The price we are having to pay today in the shape of the collapse of the organized church is only the inevitable consequence of our policy of making grace available at too low a cost. We gave away the word and sacraments wholesale. We baptized, confirmed, and absolved a whole nation, unasked and without condition. Our humanitarian sen sentiment made us give that which was holy to the scornful and the unbelieving. We poured forth streams of unending grace, but the call to follow Jesus in the narrow way was hardly ever heard. With us, it has been abundantly proved that the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children unto the third and fourth generations. Cheap grace has turned out to be merciless to our evangelical church. Now let me echo Bonhoeffer. Do we realize that this cheap grace has turned back upon us? Do we realize that in our desire to simply bring people into Sunday worship, we sacrificed the discipline that would keep them in the narrow way? Do we realize that the state of the church is a product of our failure to remain loyal to Christ? Do we realize that when put to the test between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God, we chose the comfort of the world over the trials of God? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was eventually placed in a concentration camp. He knew the risks of returning to his home country, but he took them nonetheless. Some of his friends tried to persuade him to remain in England or the United States, but in a letter to Reinhold Niebuhr, he made the declaration that the people of Germany would have to choose either to support their nation or to support the kingdom of God. He wrote, I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make this choice in security. And he was correct. On April 5, 1943, he was arrested by the Gestapo. For the next two years, he was transferred between several concentration camps before being executed 
on April 9, 1945. The camp where he was killed was liberated just days later. To the bitter end, however, Bonhoeffer's writings indicate that he remained confident in his God. He trusted in Christ no matter what outcome he would face. Because, as we heard last week, there is no power in this world that claims final judgment over us, not even death. And I would ask us to compare the costly discipleship of Dietrich Bonhoeffer with that of Martin Niemöller, who was slower to realize the danger of submitting to the kingdoms of the world. Niemöller was also a German pastor during the rise of the Nazi party to power. He was 14 years older than Bonhoeffer and had served as a decorated U-boat captain during the First World War. At the close of the war, he opposed the new democratically elected government of the Weimar Republic and resigned his commission as a naval officer. While pursuing his education to become a pastor, he participated in right-wing paramilitary organizations that sought to resist the rise of leftists in the country. And he welcomed the ascension of Adolf Hitler to power because he saw in him someone who would make Germany great again. It was not until Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party exerted their control directly over the churches that Niemöller realized he had misplaced his loyalty. It was only at this late stage that he became a part of the confessing church to resist the impact that the Nazis were having on his own life. Like Bonhoeffer, he was eventually placed in a concentration camp. Unlike Bonhoeffer, he survived the war. And many of you will likely know him as the author of the poem, First They Came. There are a number of variations on this poem, but they all take some form like this. First they came for the communists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. Now in reality, Niemöller never spoke these words as a poem. This poem in its many forms is an artistic interpretation of a theme that Niemöller revisited in many sermons and speeches after the war. It was a hard-won lesson about placing our trust in the wrong powers. And I think that it's helpful for us to hear one of the longer versions of what Niemöller actually had to say. He said, when the concentration camp was opened, we marked the year 1933. And the people who were put in the camps then were communists. Who bothered with them? We knew it. It was printed in the newspapers. Who raised their voice? Maybe the confessing church? We thought, Communists, those opponents of religion, those enemies of Christians, should I be my brother's keeper? Then they did away with the sick, the so-called incurables. I remember a conversation I had with a person who claimed to be a Christian. He said, perhaps it's right these incurably sick people just cause the state money. 
They're just a burden to themselves and to others. Isn't it best all around if they're taken out of the middle of society? Only then did it start affecting the church as such, and then we started making noise until our public voices again fell silent. Can we say we aren't guilty or responsible? The persecution of the Jews, the way we treated the occupied countries, which were even written in the newspapers, we preferred to keep silent. We are certainly not without guilt. And I ask myself over and over again, what would have happened if we had in 1933 or 1934 defended the truth with our lives? If we had said back then, it's not right when Hermann Goring simply puts 100,000 communists in concentration camps to let them die. I can imagine that then perhaps 30 to 40,000 Protestant Christians would have been made a head shorter, but can also imagine that we would have saved the lives of 30 to 40 million people, which is what it costs us now. Martin Niemöller speaks to every one of us. It does little good to wait until things have become truly hellish in order to speak out. In fact, the gospel, costly discipleship, compels us to speak out for the truth precisely when we have the most to lose. Can we truly call ourselves followers of Christ if we merely watch as others bear their crosses? Can we claim to serve the God of love and truth if we speak out only for those like us? Or do we serve the Lord who tells us to love our enemies, who showed us that it's worth dying for the sake of others? Now I understand that the call to costly discipleship is a daunting one. Costly discipleship will put us in conflict with the lesser authorities and minor rulers of this world. But I hope that you hear it for the good news that it is. Costly discipleship is also a radical freedom. It's the confidence to face injustice without fear. It's the assurance that with the God of truth on our side, nothing can stand before us. No ruler, no power, not even death, can overcome the final judgment of Christ. And in this knowledge, we can trust that like the ancient people of Israel and Judah, we will come through judgment and destruction to the place of resurrection. And truly, times of resistance and reformation are the most exciting times to be alive, both personally and institutionally. Resistance forces us to test our mettle. Anyone can be loyal in good times. It takes a true follower to be loyal in times of trial. Resistance allows us to sharpen our understanding of who we are, of what it means to be God's people, as opposed to those taken captive by the deceits of this world. And out of resistance, we're able to reform into something more holy, more in the image of God. Reformation is the lived experience of the resurrection here and now. The question was put to me recently, how do we live like we're already in the kingdom? 
when the world wants to take everything we have. I say to you, do not be afraid to place your trust in God. Trust in the witness of our brother Dietrich, who gave the world all that there was to take, knowing that Christ will have the final say. Learn from the hard-earned wisdom of our brother Martin that the powers of the world will only use you until you no longer serve a purpose to them. So long as we continue steadfast in the trust of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can live as people who already belong to the kingdom of God, knowing that nothing can triumph over the resurrection power of Christ's love. Amen. For our prayer of dedication this morning, I'd like to share with you the prayer of Jesus um, written by St. John Vianney. So, would you please pray with me? I love you, O oh my God, and my only desire is to love you until the last breath of my life. I love you, O oh, my infinitely lovable God, and I would rather die loving you than live without loving you. I love you, Lord, and the only grace I ask is to love you eternally. My God, if my tongue cannot say in every moment that I love you, I want my heart to repeat it to you as often as I draw breath. Amen.